So I have those words come to you as almost those famous last words. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then something goes terribly wrong. Ever been there? Are you sure you should be messing with those files on that computer? Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Are you sure this is the right way to go? <laughs> Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Are you sure that's the right ingredient to add? Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Are you sure? Oh, I've done this a million times before. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then the computer crashes, becomes a brick of no use whatsoever. The car doesn't start as you remove that thing out of it and tried to put it back. The cake was ruined. You're lost and you have no idea where you are because you took a wrong turn. I suppose we've all been on the bad end of that phrase, trust me, I know what I'm doing, at least enough times that we know not to believe people when they tell us that we can trust them and have all assurances that they know what they're doing. And yet this very morning, as we turn to this text, the Lord calls to His people and He says, trust me, I know what I'm doing, that He has a plan. And he's working it out in his perfect timing and way, such that then the call for us as a people of faith is to, of course, trust, to obediently trust this word, walking in faithfulness. So as we turn to this text, we are reminded that we are called to this, trust, namely trust that God knows exactly what he is doing always always knows what he's doing, because he will always be faithful to his people. He will always be faithful to his plan. He will always be faithful to his promise. And so the call is for us to trust him, because he knows exactly what he is doing. Trust him. He knows. And what unfolds then in these four scenes that fall out of this text of the next three plagues are really four reasons that we can trust Him because He knows what He's doing. And in the first place, we see that the Lord knows first how to make distinctions. The Lord knows how to make distinctions. This is in chapter 8, verses 20 to 24 of Exodus. This is the first reason we can trust God, because we know that He knows what He's doing precisely because He can make distinctions. That means He's discriminant. Now, that might scare us at first. He discriminates? That doesn't sound so good. But discrimination, in one sense, is necessary if we know what we mean by it. That, in other words, God is discerning. He doesn't see all things the same. In other words, He's not careless. He's not indiscriminate. He makes distinctions. Now, with that, we left off last time, and we saw the first third of the three plagues. I know there's ten plagues, and you can't divide that in threes. But you take the first nine, and they come in a wave of three. And we see that with the first third we looked at last time, but now we look to the next three. The first third, we saw that God is a judge. This was the key theme that surfaced out of this text. But now as we turn, we discover in the next three plagues, four, five, and six, that His judgment is very controlled. It's very purposeful. It's applied with very precise, fine distinctions. He's in perfect control of His judgment such that the next cycle of plagues continues in the way really the first three began. 
That is, the Lord calls Moses to go visit Pharaoh, and he does so early in the morning, first thing. And just like last time of the first plagues, he comes in the morning at the waters to give God's message of warning to Pharaoh. And it starts here in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Ugh, that sounds horrible. The first plague against Egypt was how these Nile waters were going to be turned to blood. And then you had frogs. You had Bunches and bunches of frogs, frogs everywhere. And then that was followed by gnats, which I'm sure were quite annoying. Then all of these judgments, why were they coming upon Egypt? Namely because Pharaoh wouldn't obey God's word. And for that, judgment was coming. He wouldn't obey God's command, let my people go. And so for saying no, Pharaoh is now paying the price. Such that God comes with this threat of another plague, but this time it's flies. Swarms of flies. Actually, the Hebrew is not so specific as to the kind of insect is here. It's just swarms of insects. And they're everywhere. The whole place will be overcome with probably flies among them, such that you cannot escape them. Of course, you're outside. There's flies everywhere. You run inside, and there's flies everywhere. You go up, there are flies. You go down, there are flies. You go high, you go low. Flies are everywhere. They're in your shoes. They're in your hats. They're in your food. They're in your closets. You can't get away from the flies. Okay, it's a new plague, but kind of the same story that we had kind of seen thus far through the plagues in Exodus, until the Lord reveals a new component to this message to Pharaoh. Look at verse 22. He says, So this is the Lord instructing Moses to instruct Pharaoh. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Or you could translate the midst of the land, that the Lord is here. Here's how you're going to know I'm here. He says, verse 23, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So here's what's new. Here's the new component that we're hearing with these plagues in comparison to the first three that we already considered. But on that day, he says, I will set apart. I will make a distinction. I will set apart the land of Goshen. Other translations have it, I will mark off Goshen. It will be set aside. I will, another translation has, deal differently with Goshen. In other words, he's making distinctions. He's making a difference. And why? What's so special about Goshen? But the Lord says, it's where my people live. Where my people live, he says. The Israelites live in Goshen. That's a section within Egypt. That's where my people are. And so it's going to be a different place. That is, it's not so much about the land itself, but it's about the people that live there. Verse 23 again. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. 
So see this, there's a difference in the Lord's mind between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Yes, they are all His creation. He made them all, but He does not see them the same, and He does not then treat them the same. Again, because look at verse 23. Thus I will put a division between my people, the Lord says, and your people, Pharaoh. And that way, Pharaoh has some people, but Yahweh has some people. Between all the people that live in Egypt, only some are God's people. That is, they have a special relationship, and so then a commitment and affection that God has for them, because they are His. They belong to Him. And on account of that affection, love, choosing, and difference, it would not be right or fair or good for him to treat the Egyptians just as he does the Israelites. He makes distinctions. There's a difference. Do you remember as the way the Lord reframed the covenant for them, this kind of covenant commitment, when he says, you are my people? It's back there in chapter 6, verse 7. He was reaffirming this promise and commitment the Lord has to the Israelites. And he said this. He said, of course, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. But he says this in Exodus 6, 7. He says to the Israelites, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know then that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The Lord will seek to be, he seeks to be known as a God who makes a difference, who makes distinctions, and has a particular people for himself. That's how you will know he is God. But when we looked at this verse, when we started studying through it back in Exodus 6, we noted how that verse, verse 7, it rings like our marriage vows, doesn't it? Again, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. We start to see then, if we think through this like a parallel like marriage, where God has a special commitment to His bride, I think we can excuse Him for being so discriminatory toward his bride. Because, of course, think through the alternative. What should you tell a married man that says, you know, I love all people, especially all women, and I love them all the same. I love my wife. I love my neighbor's wife. I love my brother's wife. I love the wife down the street, and I love them all the same. I mean, what would you say to that man? You're evil. You're wrong. You're adulterous. You're unfaithful. That would undermine the very special relationship in oneness and the exclusivity of the husband and wife's relationship together if he was to treat all women just like he treats his wife. Of course, no. When a man marries, he tells God and he tells the world, but most of all, he tells his beloved bride I take you and you alone to be my wife. Right? Often the question is posed to the groom like this, man, whatever his name, will use brace. Man, will you have this woman to be your wife, to love her and comfort her and protect her and to provide for her? And will you honor and keep her in sickness and in health? And this, and forsaking all others... 
keep yourself only for her all the days of your life. And in the marriage vows, you're saying, yes, absolutely. My love is absolutely and only for her like this. It's a promise of a totally changed, special, exclusive relationship. Such that this new husband promises to always discriminate in favor and so prioritize his relationship with his wife. Above all others, forsaking all others. To do otherwise would be wrong. To do otherwise would be evil. You must make such a distinction. Well, this is what God has done with His people. He weds them. It's often the picture in Scripture. He marries them. He calls them His own. He prioritizes them. He chooses them. He sets His commitment, love, affection on them. In in the end, this proves this marvelous picture of that doctrine of election, doesn't it? Where God has chosen for Himself a people that will be forever His, that He's committed to them above all. And because they are His, because He has chosen them, set His love upon them, He comes for them, and He comes to save them and rescue them. And we see that pictured with Israel, but of course it's most of all put with the church. And you see this come together in this analogy, of course, from the commands that Paul gives to husbands when he says this, Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, Love your wives. And the idea is with an exclusive love. As Christ loved the church. And so what did He do? He gave Himself up for her. His love, His favored one, His bride, the elect of His church, He gave Himself for her. Such that, of course, there's a sense where God's love is very broad. He loves everybody. That's a general love. He sends the rain and the sun to go down on the righteous and unrighteous in this world. That's a sign of His general love. He tells us to love your neighbor as yourself in this very way. But do not love your neighbor's wife as your own. That's a entirely different story. That is, God, too, has a special love, a heightened love and commitment for His people. One that gives up his own life for his love, his church, those who trust in Christ, those he has redeemed, such that he would not dare treat them the same. He called them, he claimed them, he's taken responsibility for them, for their very souls to save them. And more, furthermore, he even works all things together in his providence and control to make sure his chosen ones, his bride, come to faith, trust in Christ, and then even he strengthens them to keep the faith all the way to that wedding day, the wedding of the Lamb. Because this God knows what He's doing, because He knows how to make distinctions, that means in the particular snapshot of your life, no matter what is happening, if you're in Christ, this means you can trust Him. He knows what He's doing. He also knows how to spot compromise. Why can you trust the Lord who knows? Because He knows how to spot compromise. He does not compromise. And he calls us to not compromise either. 
And yet, this is precisely what Pharaoh wants to do as we look back now to chapter 8, verse 25 and following. He's going to try and negotiate, but in that way, trick God. Dupe him. So if you recall, after the second plague came, Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh had had enough, and he calls and asks Moses for help. And so similarly now, as we come to the fifth plague, or excuse me, the fourth plague and the fruits of it, he's come and asking Moses for help. This fourth plague, the swarm of insects, again, probably flies, but Pharaoh's had enough, and so he's desperate. And so he's willing to go into negotiations about this whole thing about God's people leaving and going to worship the Lord. And, and right off the bat, Pharaoh's so desperate, he makes a huge concession. So here it is, 825. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, okay, go sacrifice to your God within the land. That is, maybe I'm not going to let you go, go, you know, leave, but I'll let you worship your God. You just have to do it in Egypt. You can worship, you just can't leave. But of course, that's not what God asked. That's not what God commanded from the beginning. He called Pharaoh to let God's people go, even on, in particular, it mentions a three days journey. And even as God mentions this three days journey, the point is not a literal three days wandering off into the wilderness. What's the point? God knew, Moses knew, even Pharaoh understood. When you leave for three days and you can't be seen, you're not coming back. They all understood that this was what was being commanded. And it's so then they could serve the Lord freely without the eye of Pharaoh overlooking them, watching them. But the point is, the call was not for them to go worship the Lord in Egypt at all. They were called to leave. And so Moses, even as Pharaoh tries to negotiate, Moses doesn't accept the counteroffer. God in this way does not negotiate. Verse 26, but Moses said, it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God, they are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Now this is first a very polite and reasonable objection about why they shouldn't stay in Egypt to worship the Lord. Your people are going to hate it. They're going to be offended by what we're doing. The Egyptians are going to try and stone us, perhaps. And this actually proves true. It was actually about a thousand years later in Egypt. This very concern comes to roost as in the 400 BCs, the Jews that were in Egyptian city, Elephantine, they were attacked because of their sacrifices to the Lord. There was a violent uprising against them among the Egyptians. So as surely Pharaoh hears this, hears this he thinks, you know what, Moses, you got a point. But next, Moses lays down the more substantive reason why they have to leave Egypt. Verse 27, we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, here's the key, as He tells us. Pharaoh, we have to do what God's commanded us. We must sacrifice. He's commanded us to do it. And we need to do it in a way we're not worried about offending you. We are going to obey the Lord our God. This is what He's told us to do. In other words, we can't compromise. 
We can't bend the rules. This is God's Word. And yet, as from the very beginning, Pharaoh does not seem to really appreciate who he's dealing with. He thinks he's like some other god or some other king. Where do you go into negotiations? Pharaoh, he's used to probably being the most powerful king, at least in his region for sure, on the earth at this point. He's used to calling all the shots. And so even every negotiation you might engage in, it's all favorable to him. And so he tries this with the Lord. Oh, I'll make some concessions, but of course, on my terms, according to my will and my timing. And so Pharaoh tries to reopen this negotiation of sorts. Verse 28. So Pharaoh said, fine, I will let you go sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Oh, and by the way, please, please, please plead for me. Okay, fine. How about this deal? You can go worship Yahweh, and you can even go do it in the wilderness, just not three days. i got to be able to keep an eye on you. You know, in case you try running away, I can send all my army after you to capture you, hypothetically speaking. You can go and worship, only you must not go very far. And he puts this emphatically, actually in a couple ways. If you see again in verse 28, Pharaoh's being emphatic. Again, like he's the one in charge. I we'll let you go to sacrifice to the Lord. And then he gets this concession. He says, only you must not go very far away. Again, he thinks he's in control. But then here, listen to Moses' reply, verse 29. Then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh tried to sound like he was the one in charge. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Only you must not do this. And then Moses takes all those terms and he throws them right back at Pharaoh's face. No, listen, I'm the one going out from you. I will plead before the Lord. Only you must not cheat the Lord again. The Lord's the one in control. There's no negotiating here. There's no compromise such that even the qualification that Pharaoh gave about you can go worship in the wilderness even, you just can't go very far, Moses doesn't even address it. He just blows right by it. The point is, we're leaving Egypt, Pharaoh, because God had said. But Moses mercifully does agree to pray for Pharaoh that the flies would be gone. And this again he does, which we see the pattern. He prays, the Lord listens. Look at verse 31. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. I mean, that's just astonishing. The Lord did as Moses asked. Very literally, you could translate it like this. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And you listen to that and you're like, I think you got the words mixed up. Didn't you mean to say that Moses did according to the word of the Lord? We see that throughout Exodus. But here we even see it. The Lord does according to Moses' word. That is the power of prayer. The astonishing thing that it is, the Almighty God who's in total control calls us to plead and intercede for others and on behalf of ourselves for the sake of the gospel, and He calls us and says, plead, ask, and I will give it to you. What power is at hand? And we leave it laying aside. 
That's astonishing. But what also is astonishing, the effect of this prayer. Removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people, such that at the end of verse 31 it says, not one fly remained. Again, that's incredible. I mean, think of armies, millions probably, more flies everywhere you go, and not one is left. You know, like that one fly, it's not even there. And when I mean the one fly, you know, you are got your cup of coffee, you got your pumpkin pie, because it is the season, right? And you're sitting there in your living room by the fire, and there's just that one zzz, zzz, Yeah, yes, thank you. And it makes that sound as it lands on the lamp or whatever. Drives me crazy. Not, no, not even that one's there. Gone. How? The gracious intervention of God. That, that's the only explanation for this. God is at work. And yet, verse 32, Pharaoh went back on his promise again. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. That's always how it works. The world tries to negotiate with God, tries to negotiate with God's people, call you to shade his word, compromise his word. They give you promises instead of his word. And then they don't keep their end of the bargain because they can't. Such that, think of this. When the world tries to negotiate with you, negotiate, think, lead you away from your full commitment to Christ. In other words, lure you into compromise. When the world is trying to lure you into compromise, first think, just ask yourself this question. Whose promise, whose word is more reliable? Whose word is unchanging? Whose word is inalterable? Whose promise is proven? Whose word is sure? The world's or the Lord's? Or whose promise is far more shifty, far more unclear, far more cheating, hidden, ambiguous, broken, always changing the terms, always altering and moving the goalposts? Whose word is like that? The world's or the Lord's? And one of the chief ways the world will dupe us is to not outright reject His Word and throw it away, but just to shade it, compromise it, dilute it. And so your commitment to Him. As one pastor pictured it, it's like this, the world calls out and says, Worship God, sure, go sacrifice to the Lord. Just don't take it too far. Just keep it one hour on Sunday morning. That's all God needs. That's all He wants. Worship God, but let me have your children. You know, don't push your religion on them. Worship God, but leave your possessions out of it. They're for you to enjoy and use all for yourself. But brothers and sisters, hear this. The Lord does not compromise His Word. Let us not compromise our obedience to that Word. He knows. His Word is His will. He knows what He's doing. May we not compromise it. Third, the Lord knows how to save His people. Because His Word is so reliable that He will not compromise, we can be sure the distinctions He makes, remember where we started, they matter. They actually mean something. Most of all, we know then that the Lord has marked a people and He will save them. And that's what we see as we turn now to chapter 9. This truth presents itself as the next plague comes upon Egypt. But again, it only comes upon Egypt. Let's look at verse 1. 
The Lord gives a warning before he gives the judgment. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the Lord, excuse me, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. I find it striking that earlier, we remember this, as the gnats came at the end of the third plague and we cued the magicians again, what did they say when they saw all the gnats and they couldn't make them? What did they tell Pharaoh? This is the finger of God. Pharaoh, you're messing with the wrong God right here. And now God says in verse 3, the hand of the Lord will fall with a severe plague. I'm bringing all five fingers to this one, guys. It's getting worse. He's adding the force and severity. It's building. But again, here, verse 4, the Lord adds this. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. He's going to make a distinction, and it's going to mean the salvation and preservation of His people and what they have. The God is in control. He knows how to save His people. This strike was very intentional. It was being applied in a very specific way. This was not a coincidence. This was not blind fate. This was not some indiscriminate virus, a bacteria, or an infection. This was the very hand of God, a hand that knows where to be placed. Because notice as well, under verse 5, the Lord can even give the precise time the disease will strike. And the Lord set a time, saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Again, this is not like the prediction of the weatherman who's going to tell us, tomorrow it's going to rain. Or even they can get rather precise. I was taken by this. It was like a month ago, if you recall, thunderstorms came through and there's tornado watches and warnings and so forth that came. And I turned up the news and was watching the weatherman and he's able to like chart the, uh, you know, the storm and tell us where it's going to be at like 3 o'clock and at 3.15, it's going to be on that road. And at 3.25, it's going to be on to Hull Street and so forth. And it was giving this what is a prediction. This educated guess. Because you can chart the wind speeds and figure out where it's going to go or predict it. But the point is, the weatherman doesn't control anything. What does he do? He guesses and he reports at the weather. Not this plague. They come like clockwork. Why? Because the Lord is in direct control of them. Tomorrow, the thing's going to come in the land. And because of his direct control, verse 6, and the next day the Lord did this thing, and all the livestock of Egypt died, and not one of the livestock, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Coincidence? Hardly. Such that Pharaoh is wondering about this, so he's going to send out some servants to go visit Goshen and where the Israelite animals are and to see, well, Moses, is it true? Could it actually be that their livestock was protected and preserved? Verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Pharaoh, it's undeniable. 
even in the midst of all the chaos around you, God is in control. He's applying His judgment. He's applying His salvation directly as He predicted and marked and worked. It's astonishing. Not even one of Israel's animals seemed to get sick, let alone dies. It's like they had a divine immunity, the super vaccine against this pestilence, this actual plague. They had God's shield of protection. Why? Because God knows how to save His people. But does this mean then for the Christian that we are to be spared or can expect no struggle, difficulty, temptation, or tragedy? Well, ask Israel. Do they have a few temptations or tragedies? Try 400 years of slavery. Even as they come out of Egypt, God continues to test them. To expose their hearts. Lord willing, we'll come to that in weeks to come. Or what about the apostles? Were they spared persecution, injustice, and slander? Or the Christian martyrs, of course. Were they spared trouble, prison, death? How about our very Lord as He came on earth? What was His life like? But by the end, characterized by suffering, grief, pain. How about the Christians you know that love Christ the most? What is exposed and shown their love to you probably was how they handled all kinds of temptations, trials, and difficulties. We're seeing it now in our very body. So can you expect to be saved from all of those difficulties? No, of course not. Well, what is the point then? The point is God knows what He's doing, and He will even work all of those things for our salvation one day. Why? Because he knows precisely how to save his people. And in the end, he finally and fully will. And that's seen in two ways. That's seen, if we can talk about it first, in the immediacy of temptations and trials that come into our life. Even through those, the Lord knows how to protect us. He knows how to save his people. Even if he doesn't take you out of the trial, right? Seize this great promise. You know it. Seize it. Drill it deep in your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation, Paul says, has overtaken you that is not common to man. So temptation, trials coming. And he says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Oh, isn't that so assuring? Yes, you will encounter trial and temptation, but in His saving power, He will make sure it's not more than you can handle, in no sense. Because He goes on. Well, how is it that we will not be tempted beyond our ability? Well, but with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape. Praise God He does. There's a way out of, instead of going into the temptation and falling, there's a way out of this. Except, unfortunately, for us, what we want is we want a ripcord. We want the eject button. Get me out of here. Way of escape means I press the button, God, and the temptation goes away. Well, here's what Paul says. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes the way He provides for us, the interesting way that it is, 
is not a way out or a way of escape out of whatever temptation or trial. It just might be the unforeseen supernatural spiritual strength to endure it, to stand under it and remain faithful. So that's in the immediacy of present temptations. But note this as well. Secondly, God knows how to save His people on the grandest scale. He will save your soul and will rescue you from any danger. Even in the hardest trials of life, that is, a life's end, plagues, challenges, temptations, diseases, even in those, He will not leave you or forsake you. He will deliver you in the end if you are marked as one of His people, if you are in Christ. If you have joined yourself to Christ by faith, if you have turned from your sin, that is, if you have seen the reality that is, I'm a sinner and I'm worthy of hell and damnation, and yet you've also seen the reality that God is merciful and He's given His Son for sinners to die in their place, and if you can see and believe that God would so love you that He would take your sins and die for you, and if you would so then believe that you could be forgiven, righteous, and redeemed, And if that would be true, if that God would give up His Son to die and redeem you, then you can rest assured, brothers and sisters, that whatever trial, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge, and Paul will come up with his own list in Romans 8. He'll talk about afflictions, turmoils, persecution. And then he adds really plaguey-sounding stuff like famines, nakedness, dangers, or sword. Whatever they are, you can rest assured because even if it takes your earthly life, it cannot take your soul. And it cannot separate you from the love of Christ, whatever it is. No, rather, because of the cross, and if we are in Christ, we are assured of this, Paul says. No, in all these things, we are actually more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Why? Because what does death bring you? More of Christ. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is secured for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But with that too, he not only knows how to save his people, he also knows how to judge the wicked. Verses 8 to 12. This shows in this strike of festering boils. But like the third plague before it, now we're on to the sixth, there's no warning this time. Against a hard heart, Yahweh's judgment just keeps coming. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a handful of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And again, the plagues intensify. They're coming closer to home. Before, we had their pocketbooks being struck as all of their cattle, their money, were falling over dead. But now, it's touching them directly. These festering boils breaking out all over the Egyptians. Painful things. Horrible things. So horrible that to find these Egyptian magicians resurface in the text, and they cannot come to the royal court to address Moses anymore about the issue. Look at verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses 
because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And by implication, but not on the Jews. Evidenced here by Moses. He's walking around in Pharaoh's court, no problem. He feels great, even though he's in the midst of all kinds of disease. Moses is fine. Why? Because he's marked out as God's. He's protected by him. Pharaoh's sorcerers, on the other hand, also think of the sorcerers. They were also like the healers. They can't do anything against this. They can't even stand up to be before him. What does this show? Yahweh must be at work. He knows what he's doing. His purpose is coming about. And in particular, he will judge and afflict the rebellious house of Pharaoh. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The Lord's in control. The wicked will be judged. Even if part of the judgment is for God to cement their heart in unbelief. Now to unpack what's going on there, talking about the depth of Pharaoh's hard heart, the story that's unraveling in this picture. A heart that the Lord hardens. It's also, the text says, it's a heart that Pharaoh himself hardens. How does this work? How do we explain that? Well, Lord willing, stay tuned next week. But before we get there, just center on that sobering truth. The rebels are being judged and condemned. The Lord knows how to judge the wicked. You go to 2 Peter chapter 2, chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2, the statement comes out and God says he knows how to save his people and he knows how to judge the wicked. And then you turn to chapter 3 in 2 Peter and the wicked are going to say things like, but God's not going to come judge. He's never come yet. He's not coming now. But he's coming. He's coming. And so that word for us must be, if you have not come to find mercy with him, you got to come right now. He will judge you. He will judge you, despite whatever your present circumstances look like. That is, your present circumstances can be no sign. They can be no affirmation or discouragement about how the Lord thinks about you. You cannot look at the snapshot of your life and go, wow, things are going pretty good, so God must be in favorable towards me. Or, conversely, you should not look also, well, things are going pretty bad and so God is against me. No, the cross and where you stand with Christ says everything about those matters. And so what does this mean for us? Well, if you are outside of Christ, despite however good your life might be going, you need to turn and come to Him now. You need to beg for mercy now and you need to mean it. Not a compromised confession, but a real one from the heart But you cannot let your present circumstances then, for anyone here, believer or no, be some kind of indication about what the future holds for you, whether God esteems you or loves you or not. The great Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, said it like this. He spoke of God's providence. God's providence is God's working in your present circumstances, whatever those are in your life. Watson said this. God's providence is greatly to be observed, looked at, pondered, considered. But we are not to make it the rule of our actions. It is good to observe providence, but we must not make it our rule to walk by. You can't look at your circumstances and figure out, well, is that going good? That's the good way to go. If that's going bad, that's the bad way to go. He goes on and says this, providence is a Christian's diary, not his Bible. 
Providence tells the story about what God's doing in your life, but the Bible is the truth about what God thinks about you in Christ. He goes on. Sometimes a bad cause prevails and gets ground, but it's not to be liked because it prevails. We must not think better of what is sinful because it is successful. Providence is no rule for our actions to be directed by. Instead, he goes on to say, but God's promises are. So if things are going well for you, don't dare just assume that's because God is pleased with you necessarily. Because I can guarantee you by the promise and word of God, if you're outside of Christ, He is not. You might say, my relationships are going well. I've got what I want. I feel respected, affirmed. God must approve of me too. But again, if you're outside of Christ, be sure. Judgment will come to you outside of Christ. But conversely, if you're in Christ, and even then things have been rather challenging in your life, stuff's going on with your health, your kids, don't let that be the lens for how you see whether or not God is for you or no. Only the cross can be that lens. That's the only way you can look and get a view on how does God think of you. It comes through the cross and looking to Christ. Only there you will see that God is for you. That full salvation is accomplished by Him. But again, as you go and look at the cross. And even there, there's a, a tale and a picture, isn't there? About present circumstance, but what is reality? For in the present circumstances, Christ died on the cross. It did not look like victory, but loss. I mean, what happened? A rescuer came down and he died. It looked like he failed. It looked like... He was being cursed of God, smitten of God, forsaken by God. But the Lord knew what He was doing, didn't He? Because He was being forsaken that you wouldn't be. He was dying for your sins that you wouldn't have to die, but would have life. He died that we would be saved, spared, made His special people. That was all in the plan of God, all accomplished at the cross such that we read Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That was God's plan. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, all by the cross of Christ. The Lord knows what he's doing. He's saving our very souls for himself. And so in the meantime, he calls us, Trust me. And always look to the cross. Let's do that now as we pray.